It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day, listeners, and welcome once again to the two Jacks. We are speaking to you on the eve of Christmas. Not quite the eve, not the 24th, but the 19th of December as we record this. And uh, joining me as usual is Hong Kong Jack. G'day, mate. How are you? Excellent. That's the way. Getting ready for Christmas? Uh, yes. The, 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 the town is emptying out a little, as it always does. And what are your personal plans? My personal plans for Christmas? Um, uh, a pretty quiet uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, my son and girlfriend are arriving Boxing Day and my wife returns the day after. So it'll be so a family. So you've got a Boxing Day Christmas. <laughs> it'll be a, a Boxing Day Christmas and, and a Christmas between Christmas and New Year. Very, very traditional. Um, and uh, you'll be doing the cooking on the Boxing Day? Uh, ooh, that hasn't been decided yet. We might go somewhere nice to eat. Okay, fair enough. And you'll have we, an we, eye we, on the... We will have all had the traditional Christmas lunch on Christmas lunch, so uh, we might do something different. Um, and uh, but, but it's just you on your own, or, 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 or is your lovely wife... No, I'll be uh, having you, Chris, Christmas uh, evening meal with um, uh, some American friends. Oh, well, at a, at some American friends at a British pub, and it will be the full catastrophe of uh, a British Christmas with roast beef and Yorkshire pudding and uh, all that sort of stuff. Oh, just perfect. Well, it's it's cool. It's cool in Hong Kong. There, very humid today in the in the Highlands. Uh, you don't often get the humidity, Sydney's humidity, but we've got it today. It's an overcast day. Going to be about twenty eight and. Uh, and it is a little bit of a struggle with the humidity, but um, I haven't seen the forecast for Christmas yet. Uh, I might just have a look at the BOM, who have received a bit of criticism for um, uh, not predicting the degree of uh, rain that has befallen Cairns. Uh, you must have seen some of the footage there, Jack. I did, um, yes. Very wet indeed, even by our yeah. standards. I think it's only 300 millimetres of rain in uh, less than a day at one point, and it hasn't really stopped very much. A mate of mine has been uh, Facebooking uh, the drama, and it looks very, very serious. And I think finally the uh, the military uh, are involved and taking people off uh, house roofs. Uh, we have a, uh, a predicted 22 here on, uh, on Christmas Day, and that... Uh, Involves a bit of rain, a shower or two, so that's not going to be hideously hot. Um, uh, but well, it was, off it was nine, de- nine degrees here yesterday morning, so you know. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's uh, that's springtime in the Southern Highlands, mate. We take our shirts off when it gets to ten. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> breaking news: the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, Natasha Files, has resigned. Over conflicts of interest, there are two specific conflicts of interest uh, in shareholdings in mines, undisclosed, and she was, of course, the relevant minister before she became the chief minister uh, <coughs> over over mining, um, and it includes an allegation uh, that she had um, refused as, as health minister, not mining minister, but health minister, to investigate suspected 
heavy metal poisoning of Indigenous Territorians at the manganese at a manganese mine, which she had a shareholding, Jack. So that is a, re- a resignation offence, and if you don't resign, you've got to go anyway. Uh, yeah, allegations, but yes, yeah, that's a resigning offence. Well, it's, it's, it's a strange place to resign. Uh, yeah, those, that, that, the, the, the bit about the clean-up and the connection there is, uh, is really speculative, but um, it would seem... Um, uh, that uh, she well, she has offered her resignation. Northern Territory politics is uh, uh, a movable feast, Jack, um, and uh, uh, she uh, did not cover herself in glory throughout her period as Chief Minister. Um, she, if I might be so bold, didn't seem all that bright. Um, it's a strange place. Um, I think the average <laughs> around the country for the proportion of uh, employees who are on the government payroll is about 8 or 9%. Um, in the Northern Territory, I think it's 17% plus. So it's a government town, really. Well, they're two government towns. Um, and, and that changes the dynamics of... Um, changes the dynamics of how politics works. They've got an election coming as well, Um and uh, I think uh, next year they go to the polls, uh, and it uh, it's always the way that you know it's a little bit like Queensland that you see an elected government with a fairly significant majority can be swept aside very very quickly, and um, and then they go through that cycle all over again four years later. Hmm. All right, uh, we'll keep an eye on that story uh, as we go into Christmas, but. Uh, at the moment, Northern Territory, the Northern Territory is leaderless going into Christmas. I don't think that'll bother they won't notice the Territorians the all that much, Jack. They won't notice the difference. Uh, no, they'll be into the stubbies um, and uh, not worry about it too much. Uh, in sadder news, uh, Jerry Hand, um, former member of the Victorian left uh, and uh, former Indigenous Affairs Minister in the Keating government, um, uh, has passed away at 81 years of age, Jack. Yeah, he was my local member, um, uh, Jerry, um, and had um, been a, a ALP organiser in the hard left days, uh, worked for Cyril Primer, a senator. Um, so he was... And that, these were the days where uh, factional discipline um, was enforced, um, if necessary, with violence. Um, so he was a, had grown up in hard days, and it almost beat Bob Hawke for pre-selection for Wills. I think Hawkey won by about 10, point, 10 votes. Wow. Um, and then uh, then unseated Ted Innes for the seat of Melbourne, which was my local um, my local seat, and held that until um, for, for quite a long time. I was a minister. I was a Hawke supporter um, during the Hawke-Keating battles um, and was Minister for Aboriginal Affairs uh, for quite a while and, and worked very hard at that. Um, and then was Minister for Immigration. He was the Minister for Immigration when the uh, rule of mandatory detention of unauthorised arrivals commenced. First he introduced that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, that was the response. I'm going to say that was around about 1993, Jack. Yep. Um, when that when mandatory detention first came in. Uh, yes, a great figure uh, within the Labor Party, um, known as the Black Hand, wasn't he? He um, was. He was. Um, I can... uh, a, a major factional player, but also a very, uh, very clever and pragmatic uh, minister of the Crown. 
uh, and a decent man. Um, I can remember um, at the San Remo Ballroom, uh, uh, Paul Keating standing up and saying um, uh, he was, was a fundraiser for the ALP in Victoria and uh, uh, Jerry had invited um, Keating down to speak and um, uh, Paul got up, buttoned up the Xenia suit and said, you know, if I'd been born in Melbourne and Jerry Hand had been born in Sydney, he'd have been in the New South Wales right and I'd have been in the Victorian left, and there was just uproar around the San Remo ballroom. Um, <laughs> uh, it, w- it was a great night. So Jerry um, was the minister. Uh, Jerry was the member for Melbourne until he resigned, and then there was a, a battle between Lindsay Tanner and Julia Gillard uh, for the seat, which Lindsay won. And um, Lindsay held it then for a time, and now it's a green seat. And no, I was just going to say now, and they'll, and they'll have a lot of trouble getting it back. Stopped, uh, stopped being a factual, a factional plaything for the Labor Party. Um, uh, it's gone to the Greens, and it ain't coming back anytime mm. soon. In large part, that's because a lot of the old socialists left are now in the Greens. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, we talked about this in terms of voting behaviour. Um, it really is. I mean, in terms of stability within the Labor Party, it, it, it's brought that along too. But it's also. Uh, it means that Greens votes in seats that they can't win. Um, our preferences tend to go to Labor almost nine out of nine out of ten. So um, it, it gives Labor an electoral advantage where the Greens are strong, but not strong enough to win seats. Yeah, uh, I, it was a ding dong battle between Lindsay Tanner and Julia Gillard for the pre-selection, uh, and Lindsay didn't speak to me for about fifteen years afterwards because I voted the wrong way, according to him. Oh, do you get on now, Lindsay? Uh, now yes, that you're yes, yes, that's fine. Lindsay um, Tanner um, uh, moved on from uh, his position at Essendon Footy Club. Hmm. He got pretty much uh, uh, dragged them out of the grave too, by the way. Oh, he's a good man, Lindsay, know that about it. And, and was it, it was an excellent minister. All right. Uh, now, we've got uh, the uh, Liam and Defo uh, unfolding at the moment. Uh, um, Brittany Higgins, Chief of Staff, Fiona Martin, is giving evidence. Um, uh, it, it, uh, the session uh, that's just concluded uh, before lunch uh, was not subject to a, um, a live feed. Uh, no one could watch it um, uh, remotely. Um uh, and, um, and in fact, I think uh, lawyers acting on behalf of Fiona Martin actually requested that the, the courtroom be cleared of all people but uh, media uh, and uh, those directly involved. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, Justice Lee said no to that. And she's given uh, some fairly significant evidence, Jack, this morning, um, saying that there was pressure placed upon her by her... Uh, uh, minister, that's uh, Linda Reynolds, and uh, Alex Hawke, uh, who had uh, um, uh, some involvement, and this is the previous minister, uh, they had both instructed her to report this directly to the police, and she she declined to do so. She said she feared that she might lose her job uh, by declining to do so, uh, and um, uh, but uh, she wanted to give uh, Brittany Higgins agency over reporting that uh, reporting the offence. Um, it doesn't cast uh, well when she was asked this morning about uh, why the ministers insisted that she report it to police without the um, without the approval um, uh, of Brittany Higgins. Uh, she uh, she said she believed that uh, uh, they were doing that the two ministers were doing this. 
Hawke and uh, Hawke and Reynolds were doing this um, to cover themselves, Jack. Um, yeah, they were exercising their judgment uh, to uh, to prevent further damage to um, uh, the government. I suppose, I suppose you would That's say. That's right. Yeah, uh, which is a completely exercised. different set of priorities, isn't it? Uh, yeah, um, um, she. I, I think Fiona Brown exercised her judgment better myself. She seems to have been one who's come out of this in in very good shape, and 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 also that she she seems to have been uh, characterised um, by the Higgins camp and, and, and Britain in particular as a person who was sort of walked past um, the allegations that uh, Brittany Higgins made, um, and. Um, and that was covered fairly uh, concisely in a piece by Stephen Rice, Ricey for the Australian, um, and uh, uh, it, where he covered the uh, the uh, evidence or testimony given by Lisa Wilkinson, the uh, Channel Ten journalist, uh, who seemed to be giving evidence that uh, I'm not sure that the, uh, Justice Lee would be all that impressed by Jack. No, he wasn't. Um, uh, well, you, we, you and I have talked about the Jack Elliott rule. Is that is don't do this sort of thing and don't start suing people for defamation. Um, I would make an exception in the case of Fiona Brown. I think she's a walk-up start. I, I, I can see that, yes. I can definitely see that. Uh, so who, who as, would she as, sue, Jack? As Fiona she, Brown she said... Would, but, she would sue Channel 10 and, and Lisa Wilkinson if she was of that mind, of course. Yeah. The worst thing, as Fiona Brown correctly said, the worst thing you can say about a woman is she walked past another woman's rape, and that's effectively what uh, Channel 10 were accusing her of. Um, and I think, you know, she's got a good claim against um, Channel 10 and Lisa Wilkinson. Um, yes, it would seem so if she decides to go down that path. And it must be said, too, that Fiona Brown has suffered. She was a Liberal Party staffer, so she's a, a, a party appointee, she's not a bureaucrat, um, uh, and that she suffered significantly, significant trauma uh, as a result of these claims. Um, which would, which <laughs> would be a good reason not to, not to sue. That's, that's true. Uh, yes, and, and and there has been a fair amount of care extended to her while she's given her testimony, um, because there is a there is a realization that she's uh, suffered significantly as a result of this uh, sort of saga unfolding. You've seen most of the evidence, Jack. We've had the Channel Ten executives, we had um, uh, the Channel Ten doyen of news uh, and current affairs, um, uh, Meekin, Peter Meekin. Peter Meekin giving evidence now. He's 81, um, I think, 81 or two, um, giving evidence as well. We've seen Lisa Wilkinson give evidence. Um, we don't want to push too far uh, and cross the boundaries of um, uh, sub judice, but um, where do you think this is going to fall, Jack? Uh, well, we're a little bit safe because there's not a jury involved, um, uh, but... Um, uh, what do I think? Um, uh, well, I think Bruce Lemon needs to prove firstly that he was defamed and to prove that he needs to prove that he was identified sufficiently in the story. Mm. Um, and then he has to, then Channel 10, if they want to defeat that, have to prove either truth or qualified privilege. Uh, where do I see it in a nutshell? I think he gets up on the defamation. I think there's enough um, identify, identification to get him up there. I think they lose on the truth and qualified privilege is really hard to get up. Um, and I think on balance, probably he wins. Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, well, I'm not quite sure when the judgment is due and, it, and it, there may, may be no date. 
um, but it, it would be, I would, I suspect, probably around March or April of uh, next year. Could be. I thought Peter Peter Meekin did a fair bit of damage to their qualified privilege defence yesterday. Uh, explain that, please. Well, in layman's terms, the qualified privilege for the qualified privilege defence to get up, you've got to show that it's in the public interest and you've done a really good job of the journalism. And, and he was critical of some aspects of how it was done. Um, and I think that, that's a fair bit of damage done to it. All right. Well, I just want to just dwell briefly on uh, Lisa Wilkinson's evidence, Jack. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, let's, this is just quoting from Rice's article. Let's leave aside the program's failure to reveal it was Brown and Reynolds who urged Higgins to go to the police. We don't. That would seem now to be not quite the case. Reynolds, yes. Um, uh, well, Re- Reynolds actually instructed Brown to go to the police without uh, the uh, permission of uh, Brittany Higgins. Um Uh, And he says, he goes on to write, consider instead Wilkinson's claim that this was an example of Brown being portrayed as nice because she gave her a brochure and told her to have the afternoon on, afternoon off, I should say. And uh, counsel said, that's your answer? Uh, And Wilkinson says, yes, that's a caring gesture, not a callous one. How is taking the afternoon off a callous gesture, Wilkinson asks. Uh, well, perhaps because a boss telling a woman who has just claimed to have been raped not to go to the police or a doctor or a counsellor, but to take the afternoon off would be about as caring as it gets, Rossi, Rossi says. Yeah, there was, shall I say the word obfuscation in, in, in uh, Wilkinson's testimony, Jack? Uh, I think that would be fair. Mm. Uh, look, we've been watching it. I think the numbers are in the, in the sort of 40,000s uh, over the last few days. Uh, there will be a judgment made next year. Um, can, we, who, can, we, can we advertise the two jacks on the feed? So, if there are forty thousand people watching, <laughs> someone should be monetizing. No, this. no, you can't. And in fact, there was a um, uh, a, a sort of men's rights um, um, organisation that was getting onto the feed, making all sorts of comments there. Yeah. And uh, Justice Liz has demanded the identity of those people uh, involved in that. Um, so, yes, uh, the answer to that, Jack, is no, we can't. And, 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 and that won't go well for them, which is why I was uh, suggesting... It will not go well at all once, they're, uh, yeah, once, they're, once they, their identities uh, are revealed. Justice Lee has asked um, uh, asked for them to appear and show cause why he should not have them charged with contempt of court. Ooh, yeah, they might uh, might be uh, having a change of Christmas plans. Those uh, individuals, Jack. Yeah, bring a toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we speak of Christmas, who's going to enjoy it more, um, Anthony Albanese or Peter Dutton? Um, I think Dutton will. I think. I mean, there's been a lot of reporting suggesting that. Uh, certainly, um, Simon Benson's reporting in the Australian suggesting that Elbow is a is a um, a heavy weight on Labor support, but Labor goes into uh, Christmas um, uh, in front um, in polling. Um, there was one other poll um, uh, released uh, uh, last week or earlier this week, uh, just going off the, some of the sophologists that I follow, uh, which had it at fifty fifty. Um, and uh, that was corrected on 2PP to uh, 50.3 for Labor. That would be very, very close. Um, but as it stands, Labor's primary votes 
in the Redbridge poll is at 33, which is low. I mean, it, it, that's that's low, uh, and it gives them a 2PP if we want to extrapolate that. And it's always controversial, uh, just on 53% of 52.8. So the party seems to be going okay. I mean, when we say okay, you've got to qualify it by saying that um, uh, that um, these are very difficult times. I mean, it's always the economy stupid uh, and uh, and cost of living pressures and inflation, interest rate hikes uh, for no great benefit, it must be said, um, have uh, have really reduced people's uh, spending. Um, yeah. The, the reason I think that, um, uh, that Dutton uh, might have a slightly better Christmas is that his job at the start of the year was to put Labor, put uh, the coalition uh, back in a, a sort of a competitive position. Um, and I think he has done that. He sort of, you know, set out what he what he needed to do at the beginning of the year. He's, he's achieved that. Um, uh, Labor would still win an election if it were held anytime soon. Um, uh, the the, the two-party preferred uh, vote is about the same as it was at the last election. So they'll probably get much the same, perhaps a little worse, Worst case scenario is they have to govern with a, a few green supports, but they're going to win the next election, most likely. Most but likely, yeah. That wasn't Dutton's job. It was almost going to be impossible for him to win an election. Yeah, they haven't gone over. backwards. So, so if we if we look at two thousand and seven when Rudd came to power, it was an absolutely disastrous eighteen month period um, for the coalition. They started off with Brendan Nelson. We call that the the Nelson months. Uh, and then he was rolled by Malcolm Turnbull, uh, and then uh, Tur- uh, Turnbull himself was rolled, uh, and yeah. they they really just got involved in uh, a fair amount of knifing and 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 bad blood. So they haven't done that, they haven't lapsed into that mistake. Um, yeah, so, so so Dutton's provided some stability and a bit of spine in the in the coalition. Um, so I think he's done a, you know, I, mean, I, I don't think he's going to become a prime minister, but I think he's done a pretty good job with what he had to do. Um, yeah. uh, and on on the on the other side, if you're if you're Anthony Albanese, you look back over the last twelve months and you say, well, I handled the voice very very badly, um, uh, and, um, and and I've been hit by the economy. They're the two things that have done most damage. Well, my yeah, and and look, it must be said, a lot of the economic stuff is beyond beyond the control of governments, uh, regardless of who's in power, because of external forces, uh, because of the post-pandemic period where there where there was a lot of consumer spending, a lot of uh, a lot of money in bank accounts sitting around to be spent, um, and then we had uh, things like uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, restrictions on energy. Uh, all sorts of issues like that that were always going to be uh, difficult for governments in this country to handle. The voice was a bit of a disaster, and I suspect um, uh, that's what Elbow's being judged on at the moment. Um, and, uh, and and Dutton is probably the beneficiary of, well, I'm not crazy about Elbow. A little bit of that. Um, uh, the, the problem with the voice was it was a mistake made at the top. And uh, and that will be a little not not a millstone round Elbow's neck, but it's going to be a weight he's going to have to carry for the rest of his political career. Yeah. Okay. Um, what was he doing in uh, Margaret River, Jack? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the the social media and the newspapers were full of stories about um, uh, Elbow having a, a sip of a five hundred dollar bottle of wine at Cullen, I think at Cullen Wines um, uh, in the Margaret River, um, and there was a great deal of outrage about this. Uh, where from? 
So where from? Well, from 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 your brothers and sisters in the uh, in the in the, the nasty yeah, Murdoch press, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I look, and 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 you got to understand that sort of clickbaity stuff. Um, it's not really an issue of any great substance. It's like. Uh, Perhaps other other media having a pop at at Morrison because he was the water boy in a rugby game and and uh, had had, uh, had his trousers on with stains all over them and half fly half half undone. Um, but yeah, those are the, those are the sorts of things. It's a little bit like the the Airbus elbow nonsense, right? As, as if prime ministers shouldn't be travelling ever. And and that's just a bit of nonsense, really. The the real issue is the economy. If uh, with the uh, with the MyFO, um, there is a, a perhaps an optimism about uh, uh, and perhaps a, an unfounded optimism that that uh, that inflation will go back to within the AR or the Reserve Bank's um, uh, proposed band, uh, you know, between two and three percent in the next twelve months, and that would take a lot of heat uh, away from the government. Yeah. More importantly on wine news, um, Australia is swimming in a wine lake. There are t- about two billion bottles worth of wine uh, sitting in casks unable to be sold. This is a terrible problem. Um, what have we got going on there, Jack? I mean, look, uh, most of Australia's wine, I know this because I did a fair bit of research into the wine industry a number of years ago, um, uh, is sold to Sweden. Uh, to be used as a biofuel. So, so it's sold? Sold as a biofuel to Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and sort of that, that took up about 70% of production. Now, it may well be that Sweden doesn't need the biofuels that it once needed. Is uh, that could the problem? Be. Um, the, the wine market in China collapsed for two reasons. One, that the Chinese whacked you know, huge tariffs on it. But even before that happened, um, the crackdown on um, corruption, as um, it was styled by President Xi Jinping, um, uh, was stopping a lot of the banqueting um, uh, where um, uh, good wines were switched down the throat. To bourgeois, Jack? Hmm. To bourgeois. But that's, I mean, it must be said the... the Chinese market for wine is relatively small compared to Japan, for example, the United States, still relatively small. So it would seem to me, without having a good, long, hard look at this in recent times, that there is a great overproduction of wine, Jack. Too many grapes. Yeah, they should put a fair fair bit of it in bottles and send it up here. <laughs> well, or you can start your car with it, Jack. Um, well, well yeah. I'm a green type of chap. I don't have a motor car. I know, I know, we know that, but uh, you could uh, you could swing at your taxi driver and say, chuck that in instead of yeah. petrol, see how you get on. In the United States, uh, Rudy Giuliani is $148 million uh, US dollars poorer, or so it would seem, after he's been ordered to pay that to two women uh, that he made false claims uh, about that they tampered with votes. Uh, the two women uh, were uh, Georgia poll workers, Ruby Freeman, and her daughter, Wondria Shea Moss, uh, and they have spoken about how devastating uh, Giuliani's uh, lies were uh, and uh, basically had to go into hiding and, and still have difficulty uh, still have diffi- difficulty holding themselves up in public. Um, they are each awarded $16 million for emotional distress um, the jury ruled another payment of seventy-five million in 
punitive damages. These are all US currencies. Was ordered to be split between them. Uh, they had originally sought between 15 and 43 million in damages from Giuliani, uh, but uh, got a fair bit more than that. Now, Giuliani has said that he will appeal, um, but he's still going to be slugged with a fair, and that $148 million figure might come down, but he's still going to be slugged with a fair, fair amount of dough that he may not have, Jack. Um, yeah, it's not uncommon for um, these jury verdicts to be reduced on appeal, um, but it's almost certainly going to be more than Rudy has. <laughs> They had the big fundraiser. He popped down to Mar-a-Lago and said, said, Donald, can you help me out? He goes, sure, mate, I'll turn up to the fundraiser, which I think was a $1,000 a plate dinner. Um, so uh, that may not be enough to get him uh, out of strife. And, of course, he's still in a fair bit of strife in Georgia um, and uh, may, well be, uh, may well be facing other criminal indictments. He's also, I think... Just to add to his woes, and they are significant. Um, it's New York where he's been disbarred, I, I think. think so, yes. And he's also uh, required to show cause in, I think, DC and possibly another state as to why he shouldn't be struck off there. Too. I don't think that's going to trouble him. I can't imagine there'll be a queue <laughs> around the block um, uh, wanting <laughs> him to Please, Rudy. Mate, I've got, a, I've got a bit of a problem, Rudy. Can you represent me in mm-hmm. court? Um, yes, I don't think that is going to be a problem, but it just adds to his woes considerably. Um, uh, yes, uh, he's fallen uh, fallen a large distance from his time when uh, he was uh, a prosecutor in New York and brought the five families to their knees, Jack. Oh, even uh, more dramatically from um, uh, he, was, yeah. he was universally, pretty pretty universally admired for his mayor the of job America. he did as mayor of New York after uh, after nine eleven. Mm. And uh, going on now with the uh, the Washington indictments, this is the four count indictment that Trump is facing um, with a um, uh, with a trial set for March four, which is right slap bang in the middle of the. Uh, 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 Republican and Democrat primaries. I think it's the day uh, before. And that may the, well be a bit delayed now, Jack. It's the day before the Iowa primaries. I think it was due to start. Uh, no, March March four. No, I was Iowa is a caucus, um, but um, um, but uh, no, no, that's a bit earlier. So I think it 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 would start a sort of a week before, or maybe a few days before Super Tuesday. So yeah. we're right in the guts of it. Anyway. Um, it would seem that that now might be delayed because uh, the uh, special counsel, Jack, Jack Smith, has called upon the Supreme Court to make a, um, make a finding on whether presidents uh, can be um, uh, convicted of offences that they commit in office. Yes, and I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be game enough to hazard a guess as to how they might find on that. <laughs> Don't ask me either, but uh, it has been a bit of a push ever since the, the Watergate years. Uh, with a with a group of mainly Republicans who maintain that, like Trump says, that uh, a president can, if the well, if we if we quote Nixon, um, if I if I say it as president, it's not illegal. If I mm. do it as president, it's not illegal. So that's that's going to be a really significant um, uh, determination by the SCOTUS. Um, and it may well, in fact, delay those proceedings on, that are scheduled to uh, begin on March 4. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, as I understand it, uh, very uncharted waters uh, in, in American constitutional terms. So 
Um, no one really knows where it's going to go. It's something that needs to be sorted out because I said it's been a running sore ever since Watergate. You know, whether, um, a, whether a, whatever a president does, no matter how bloody terrible it was, uh, it can't be illegal. Um, it's probably worth remembering and reminding listeners that when Nixon uh, was indicted, uh, it was going to go through the Senate and it would have got through the Senate. He would have almost certainly been uh, convicted. Impeached, impeached rather than indicted. Did I say, sorry, yes, I, yeah. I meant to say impeached, uh, and that he would have been convicted in the Senate. The numbers were not looking good for him at all. And one of the terms of the impeachment was uh, the illegal invasion of Cambodia. Um, and, and that sort of dropped off the the, the, the news uh, considerably because it was all, all of a sudden it was about Watergate and the tapes and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and it would have been nice to have the determination on that uh, because, of course, um, uh, Amer- America cannot go to war without congressional approval, Jack. Yeah, um, uh, I doubt that that would have got up in, uh, if, if it ended up in the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, but he would have been convicted. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. That's why he resigned and Ford mm. decided to... General uh, Jerry Ford, he was kind of a likeable guy in many ways, and he used to play golf, Jack, long after his retirement as uh, POTUS, and uh, he used to tell people on the Greens, he says, you know, I'm going to hell for pardoning Nixon. I know I'm going to hell. <laughs> As a joke. Um, um, but there you go. Now, polling in the States and uh, just when you think it can't get any worse for Joe Biden, it does. Um, and, and, and Trump uh, seems to be perhaps not skating ahead, but uh, he is well and truly ahead in, in key battleground states last week. Uh, one poll had him 10 points ahead in Michigan, which is I find hard to believe. But anyway, uh, Trump now leads in a Rasmussen report. Uh, Trump now leads Biden by 10 points, 48 to 38. Only got 86, 86% there, Jack. <laughs> Going That's on there. A, a four-point turnaround. Uh, well, sorry, a, a month ago, um, Trump was leading – sorry, Biden was leading by four points. So it's a big turnaround. I mean, you, you'd be waiting for the next – poll to be sure that's true, but I think it's fair to say that if you were setting a book today, Trump would be favourite. Yes, I think that's fair. Um, I'd ask you a question too. There was a, uh, a, a an op-ed written in Politico um, during the week that said, um, well, it went along these lines, that the indictments that, uh, that, Trump, will f- that Trump will face next year, um, let's presume the trial goes ahead in March 4 and he's convicted. Um, that Democrats have been thinking that would be a boon for them and this particular op-ed was suggesting that it might uh, swing uh, a, a, a small percentage of voters but not many and I think that's probably pretty right too. Um, I don't think Trump was going to be the nominee, let alone be president, until he was indicted. I think the Democrats have indicted him back into the uh, into the race and may well indict him back into the White House. Well, the only problem with that is, Jack, that it's not the Democrats who brought the indictments. It's the state of New York. It's the state of Georgia, um, and uh, and and the Department of Justice. Now, you have to say, on balance, his behaviour in and around January six was so awful uh, that um, that there really had to be some consequences there. Yeah, but, and they and and they and they could have chosen to indict him with really simple offences like inciting a riot, and they did not do that. Um, the, the the charges in New York are a nonsense. 
Um, uh, the charges in both Georgia and Washington are too complicated and rely on uh, RICO-style um, uh, indictments. The only charges that are straightforward well, not, are the ones not, in Florida. Not in the D.C. Not, I mean, certainly, certainly Georgia, but not D.C. I mean, here, here we've got a suggestion that he was going to basically transplant the, the Electoral College with uh, people who were going to vote him in. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was a concerted effort um, to swing the election away from uh, the will of the people. Yeah, I, get, I hear what you're saying. What I'm saying as a political matter, they've put him back in the race and they may well put him back in the White House. Um, and uh, yes, I understand that it was done in New York and Georgia and the Department of Justice, but the Department of Justice is part of the executive. Um, uh, there is no fourth arm of government. Um, the Department of Justice comes under the authority of, of President Biden. Um, and he could have stopped these at any one time he liked, and they didn't do that, and that's put Trump back in the race. Yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll see about all of that next year. It promises to be just a staggering... Just, can I just say, the interesting thing about the Rasmussen um, uh, uh, polling was that they, they polled the three-way matchup: Biden, Trump and uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, and that was 40% Trump, 32 for Biden, and 16 for Kennedy. And Kennedy's gone up about four points. So he's clearly picking up part of the Biden vote. I don't know about that, Jack. I honestly don't. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a fair amount of um, uh, there's a fair amount of uh, of crossover there. I suspect where most of the vote uh, for. RFK Jr. is coming from is from the Republican base. Yeah, it doesn't um, look like it. Anyone um, inter interestingly, Trump Trump. Um, Trump now leads Biden um, uh, with younger voters and women. Uh, that's really strange. Um, uh, yeah. That Trump's in There's front a lot of women. That's very strange about yeah. it. And, uh, and, and, uh, and among independents, Trump is beating Biden fifty-two thirty. Yeah, there's, there's clearly a, a fair amount of unhappiness with the Biden presidency or with the Biden presidency, and I, and I think that's mainly what we're looking at here in terms of polling. We're still a year out. Um, I saw Trump speak the other day where he said that, and you know, there were there, there are actually some good economic stories for the Biden government to tell. Uh, they're just not very good at telling them. Uh, and, uh, and and Trump declared those as that they were running on the fumes of the Trump presidency. The, the good economic news came that way and then suggested that uh, if he didn't win the next election, that's Donald Trump didn't win the next election, there would be a depression the like of which we haven't seen since 1929. And I just, I just look at that and go, I mean, look, I, we know that Trump's broken virtually every rule in the political book, but... I mean, this is a guy who's running around saying that the country is almost beyond redemption uh, unless he's elected. And, and I just think that's a message that just will not resonate. Mm. We'll see. We'll see. It's going to be a huge year in American politics. Uh, now over to Israel and Gaza. Haven't we had enough there yet, Jack? Uh, isn't it time for the Americans to uh, tap the Israelis and say, well, look, I don't know where you're going with this. Um you say you want to root out. Um, uh, uh, <coughs> you want, want to root out the terrorists, uh, and um, uh, really, what you're probably doing at the moment is creating a whole new generation of them. Uh, well, I don't think that's. Um, I don't think that's worrying the Israelis too much. 
um, because they know what they face. Um, you know, 75% of Palestinians support Hamas um, uh, and, and continue to support, support Hamas even after the October 7 atrocities. So um, how many more are they going to make? Well, it won't make much difference. What they've got to do is destroy Hamas. The key relationship that I keep an eye on is what are Israel, Israel's Arab neighbours doing about this because they all want Hamas gone and they're remaining silent and supportive. Um, so I think that indicates to me that the campaign by Israel is going pretty well. All right. Now, there was a piece in The Australian by Alan Howard, Jack, who said, things could have been so different for Gaza. There were proposals for its development that might have seen it on the trajectory that powered Singapore to economic prosperity after 1965. Now, I like Alan, Jack, but that's just nonsense, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's just absolute rubbish. Um, I don't know that it is nonsense. I think it's an exaggeration. Oh, let, 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 let me walk you through it, okay? Singapore has a port, no, doesn't it? It's a very, yep. very busy port. It takes um, uh, millions of tonnage uh, every year. Um, I could give you the figures. Um, uh, Gaza has a port too, doesn't it, Jack? Um, uh, but it has been blockaded by the, Israel, by, by, by the IDF, um, since 2007. Yeah, Israel so it can't be used. Israel and, and there's lots of reasons for that. And it's not all Israel. I mean, it was blockaded because Hamas was trying to bring weapons through the port. Yeah. So as the port stands now, um, because of this almost perpetual conflict, um, it, it can only take... It's never been um, um, a dugout, no infrastructure work done by Hamas, uh, blockaded by the IDF, uh, and it's really just a port for uh, small uh, fishing craft, Palestinian uh, fishing craft. So yeah. they just don't um, have the infrastructure, you know. The, they, they could have had the infrastructure. They have been given um, uh, more money um, for a city that size than, than, than the Americans ever gave anywhere in, for, in Europe for the Marshall Plan. Um, they, the difference is really? they have chosen to use it to wage war rather than to build a city. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, and I, I, I totally agree with that, that, that basically what they should have been doing rather than thinking about rather silly um, uh, false equivalences like Singapore and Gaza, what we should be saying is that um, the Palestinians had a choice to, um, uh, uh, to uh, develop Gaza, uh, to, um, uh, to um, try and enrich themselves to the point where they could start building schools, uh, start educating their young, uh, build hospitals, build infrastructure, social infrastructure for, the, for, for Gaza, and they chose instead to build tunnels and import missiles from Iran and Syria. Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether Singapore is an exact exact crossover, but I thought I thought Howe was making a good point. Um, the, the the Gazans could have built another Tel Aviv, and they chose not to. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, they made their choices. That's right. They, you know, this is the, the point I was making on our Christmas broadcast. They are the architects, largely of their own misfortune. Um, we've got essentially a majority. You said seventy five. I wouldn't put it as high as that. Uh, in terms of uh, support for Hamas, it would that be... was from the uh, Ramallah-based Arab World for Research and Development. So not my figures, but theirs. Yeah, I think that's a little high. Um, uh, we've got you know fifty-seven percent of Gazans expressed a somewhat positive opinion of Hamas, as did fifty-two percent of Palestinians on the West Bank. So whether we want to quibble about numbers, the issue is that 
the majority of Gazans, Palestinians generally, support Hamas. And that is, you know, it, it, it's going to bring more and more heartache. My issue with all of this is that it will just become another multi-generational conflict that ultimately can never be resolved. It, it must also be said, and, and we started this year with half a million people on the streets of Tel Aviv every weekend throughout the month of January calling for uh, Netanyahu to go. Um, and uh, given Netanyahu's political problems, and these were all firmly understood by Hamas, um, uh, then the attack on October 7 was a deliberate attempt not just to massacre innocent civilians and take others hostage, but to launch a propaganda and use essentially these these people, be they Israelis or Palestinians in Gaza, and use them as uh, as pawns in a propaganda war. That I would say they've done fairly well at, Jack, Hamas. Um, it, it won't change the situation on the ground in Israel at all. Um, I would expect... But a propaganda that, war throughout the West, Jack. Yeah, um, but... Israel will listen to the West, but they're not going to. The, the, the West views people marching in the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and London are not going to change Israelis' views about this. The Israelis are absolutely united about getting rid of Hamas. They, they don't, there's just no, no doubt no, about I that. I, un, I understand yeah. the argument. What I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying to you is that, that Hamas understood the dynamic when they plotted and executed the October 7 massacres. Um, and that they knew that the, the, the Netanyahu would respond with overwhelming force and that that would necessarily lead uh, Hamas and the Palestinian, um, and the Palestinian Authority uh, to basically invoke what, was, what is a propaganda war that I would suggest they're winning in the West. They might be winning at the moment, but Netanyahu's going to go after this is all over anyway. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, and the reason he'll go is that there was an intelligence failure and the person at the top always goes. Golda Meir's career ended um, following the Yom Kippur War. Yeah, but, and, and, and then when we look at the sort of the extension of this war, and I understand that the, the objectives just seem so murky, um, the, the destruction of Hamas, well, you know, what does that mean? How, 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 how is that con- going to be conceived? And, and given the desperation of Netanyahu, um, uh, that you know, this may become far more protracted than than, than it actually should. Um, I, I don't think that Netanyahu's making those decisions on his own. Um, I think they're doing a pretty good. All the tells for me suggest they're doing a pretty good job of what they're doing. Um, uh, and the question is going to be what um, replaces Hamas in Gaza. Um, uh, certainly, the UN should have no role whatsoever in it. Um, uh, they've they've blotted their copybook. They've um, emerged from this as a disgrace. Um, well, what we saw during the week, Jack, was uh, and, and the Israeli um, the Israelis acknowledged that two IDF members were killed, uh, two I think half colonels uh, were killed, and then we saw footage from funerals where there are a lot more IDF members uh, who were being buried, sadly, and and so again we we. They need to be more open about what's going on uh, and whether they're actually really struggling in 
Yeah, in, well, in like Europe. I say, watch what their Arab neighbours are saying about it. And at the moment, it's nothing. It's not, it's not the point. What I'm so, it's not the point. Uh, I, I, you've made that point before, and it, and it is a reasonable one. What I'm saying to you is, if the, 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 what they don't want to get uh, into is bogged down uh, into a stalemate position um, because of the directions that p- people like Netanyahu are giving the IDF. Yeah, I don't think they are being bogged down. There you go. Well, they had a lot more funerals than they were actually declaring as casualties, Jack. Mm. Uh, <coughs> um, all right. Uh, in the UK, well, they're, they're talking about political basket cases. Uh, the Tories in the UK, they are dead men and women walking politically. But that's not what we're doing today. Apparently, there's a brouhaha about carbonara, spaghetti carbonara, Jack. There is um, uh, at a London restaurant called Batiga Prilabato. Um, uh, They've been getting a lot of complaints because they make their carbonara um, with uh, guanciale, the pork, the pork cheek bacon sort of thing, pecorino cheese, egg yolks, uh, and that's all that goes in it. And I happen to agree with that. That's all it should go into it, although you can use pancetta instead of guanciale. Um, uh, but they people have been demanding cream and chicken and all sorts of things uh, in their uh spaghetti carbonara and the restaurant has given up and said we're just not going to take it off the menu because we don't want to have the argument. Um, can I simply debunk the myth that carbonara, carbonara is not an Italian meal. It's um, it's actually been created in non-Italian, well, in Italian restaurants but not in Italy, in the UK, for example, um, where it's sort of the, uh, the bacon and eggs or just the eggs um, of, uh, of pasta. Um, but yes, it's not an intrinsic. I, I only know this because I heard an Italian restaurateur talk about it. Um, and he said it's not an intrinsically Italian dish. Uh, well, the Romans would disagree with that. They think they invented it. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm not going to get involved in that. But, uh, COVID um, but inquiry, Jack, in New Brunswick. Um, but just, just before we leave that, these, that's, that's, it's a tricky question because if we're all supposed to follow, well, the Romans make it this way, therefore all we're all supposed to follow what the Romans do if we do something like this, what do we do about the fact that Italians would say you should never have a cappuccino after 11 o'clock or a latte after 11 o'clock? Well, so, just, are we all supposed to follow that as well? You just ignore that, Jack. You don't have it's. It's not a dictat. It's not something that you have to worry about. You can, if you don't want to make your carbonara a certain way, you can do it another way. Yes, yeah, you can I, throw in some bacon. And, and, um, and I agree with you for a change. Uh, COVID inquiry, New Brunswick. What's all this about, Jack? The Department of Health. This is in New Brunswick. Oh, there's a New Brunswick. Uh, the Department of Health uh, was unable to provide evidence-based documentation to substantiate 33 public health decisions made during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, another glance through the review mirror. Uh, the audit covered key operational areas that were meant to reduce the spread of COVID-19, including testing, contact tracing, contact management, and infection pre- uh, infection prevention and control guidance. Uh, Auditor General oh, uh, of New Brunswick said the department had numerous systems and procedures in place and were designed to reduce the spread of COVID-19 and went above and beyond to support news uh, New Brunswickers, uh, but he found areas for improvement should the need arise. Uh, this is one of the first work. one of the first inquiries that's actually gotten to. And there's been a number of COVID inquiries into how governments reacted to it. This is one of the first ones that said has has addressed what I think is the issue of going back and saying. Um, 
okay, you made decisions on things like testing, contract tracing, contract management, uh, infection prevention, control guidance, all that sort of stuff. What did you base those decisions on? Um, and what he's found is they didn't really have any data to back them up. That doesn't surprise me much, but that's a really good question to ask. What was the process you went through to make those decisions? So there's a big COVID inquiry in the UK. They're not asking that question at all. Um, and, and it's probably easier in New Brunswick. Yeah, I understand. New Brunswick. Yeah, I understand. The, 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 you, you made the point, and I think it's a really sound one, that, that, uh, uh, that governments were making decisions in hours that required months, of the, and if not years, to make under normal circumstances. So the answer is the data wasn't there uh, in any substantial way. And if we talk about 2020, the, the period of, of uh, almost 12 months before uh, the arrival of, uh, of COVID uh, around the world into Europe, Italy smashed, UK smashed um, in that pre-vaccine period, um, uh, <clears throat> the, the world had to act as best they could and, and, and isolation and lockdowns and those sorts of things, contact tracing, which proved to be a bit of a, a, bit of a failed thing. Um, very difficult, very difficult, particularly in Victoria, they had a lot of problems with it. Um, very difficult, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and I just think the, the term abundance of caution was used. I mean, I don't think, I mean, we look at this now and think, oh, COVID, you know, uh, oh, I got COVID last week. You know, but we forget things like the Delta. We forget things like the Delta strain that absolutely smashed India, um, and 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 for at least a good eighteen months of the pandemic, there was no widespread vac- vaccination. Yeah, um, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, why did you make that decision? What was the basis for your decision? I don't think this is a matter of um, hounding people down for getting it wrong, um, but I think. We ought to ask ourselves, okay, there was no data, so what, what did you use to make that decision? What was well, the basic rules, for this? Basic rules of infection control, Jack. Don't, I mean, th- those were the things that were used. Well, well, that should be explained. People should be, you know, people who made the decision should be asked to say... I think it was. Why? Why did you do it? I think it was. You, you, you needed to reduce the amount of human contact to reduce the spread of the virus. Good. Uh-huh. Then people can people can stand up and make the argument, but that's what should happen. New Brunswick's a very it's a very large geographical, but a small population state. So that's probably why this is able to be done. It's the the bit of Canada that's next to Maine, um, uh, in the northeast of uh, continental um, America. Um, but I, I actually think this is the question that, that the COVID inquiry should be about. I understand why they're not. Um, and that's because. Say in the UK, 93% of British voters backed the first lockdown, 71% um, backed the second one, uh, and no one wants to be told that it was all for nothing. But that's the question that needs to be asked for the future. Yeah, well, it might surprise you, and oddly enough, it hasn't appeared in your notes. There has been an epidemiological study of Sweden's approach, which obviously didn't have lockdowns. They had high rates of mortality, uh, higher than any other country in Europe, uh, and uh, and largely those those mortality rates were were, were driven by elderly people, um, and then of course the sort of committee that they had were passing on nonsense information, 
Um, yeah, well, and, uh, my view of that is let's put it all on the table and have Well, the it has argument. been put on the table. The, no, this no, is no, a significant hasn't. study. This is a significant epidemiological study by the Karolska Institute in, 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 uh, in, <coughs> in Stockholm. And, uh, and 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 the, the findings are there for all to see that that the, the people the government actually in Sweden basically hand passed this to a to a committee of uh, epidemiologists and so forth who went pursuing this sort of herd um, uh, uh, the uh, the herd immunity side of things which would have been utterly devastating if they hadn't pulled it up uh, and uh, because we were dealing with Delta, Variants and other uh, other variants that were killing people in large numbers. So what we saw there is yes, an absolute failure of public policy in Sweden. I mean, there are a lot of conservatives and anti-lockdown people who continue continue to tout Sweden's response as being the ideal, but it wasn't the ideal. It was a long way from it. There was higher rates of mortality in Sweden than any other country in Europe, by far, heaps further than ours. Uh, and and then of course there were lies and mistruths told by this sort of committee of management um, about um, about the the uh, the potential spread of COVID at the time. So you know th- those things have been examined now. I mean, why wouldn't Sweden have a substantial uh, inquiry into uh, you know their, their own government, not not a, not an epidemiological institute, but why wouldn't their own government? Uh, now want to have an inquiry into it. Yeah, I think they should as well. Yeah, but I think that. But 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 I, I think we should have proper COVID inquiries in Australia, for instance, and we have. Yeah, I agree. I, I I agree with it. But but too often these things can become um, uh, lapse into sort of finger pointing exercises, and that's not what we want. What we want is to get a base of information so we can plan for the next pandemic with increased global population, human population, and increased movement across continents, um, pandemics are going to become more frequent. Um, The the issue is not dealing with um, the next pandemic in much the same way as we dealt with COVID. So the, the, the abundance of caution argument is the best way to stop an infectious disease that you know very little about and have very little data about um, uh, is to reduce reduce human contact, reduce the amount of human contact. I mean, I remember yeah, well, doctors in the UK, and this is in March of 2020, April of 2020, they had no way of dealing. They had no way of treating people. They were really scrambling uh, and people were dying left, right and centre. They had no way of determining what it was because... Uh, they knew it was essentially a mnemonic, um, uh, 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 so, so, but they, they had no uh, idea about what antivirals they could use and they can't use people as guinea pigs. They were really locked into a very, very bad situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need a proper inquiry in Sweden and elsewhere, and including in Australia, as to why people made decisions, put them in the box and say, okay, you didn't have much data, we understand that, Tell me why you made the decision. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I just think that becomes an exercise that that uh, shall we say plays into the hands of of people. Um, if, if it becomes accusatory, and then it be, then it becomes one of these idiotic things that people in the end will go, oh, I don't know, I mean, and still say to this day, I don't know why we got vaccinated. It doesn't 
stop you from getting COVID. And well, mate, yes, it does reduce your symptoms and it reduces your, uh, uh, your, your transmissibility over a period of time and, and uh, your, your transmissibility, uh, the intensity thereof. I mean, yeah. Well, I'm I'm quite happy for that to go in the witness box and fa- to have that to uh, uh, have people that well, like we that already put had the that check because in the, in the European as Union, well. uh, one uh, one uh, member of uh, of the Parliament there uh, asked this leading question of a Pfizer executive, which has now been taken as a truth, and that was, oh, well, you know, she was asked, uh, did you did you create uh, did you create uh, the Pfizer vaccine for COVID uh, to reduce transmission? And she said, "Well, no." And that was that. Now, but there was an there was a there was an add-on to that answer, of course, that it wasn't about reducing transmission because re- finding a vaccine that would reduce transmission was going to take a lot longer than the world had. Um, and and but none of that was allowed to be, and instead we were told, oh well, you know, the vaccine was kind of pointless. Yeah, well, let's. And now we've got COVID still in our societies, right? Still in our societies, people in high risk situations who are going, oh well, I don't have to worry about it because it's only COVID. Well, let's put it. Let's put all this in front of an inquiry and find out what the right answer is. I, I, I'm just not sure what the, what the benefit of that would be. I understand there are there are various state governments who are going to be a bit cautious about all of that. Uh, <clears throat> Because governments don't tend to make decisions in a few in a few hours that they would normally take months or years to take, I'm quite forgiving of all of that and the abundance of caution. If we had have gone the uh, let's just let it roll in this country, you know, when we look at our mortality rates, when we look at our statistics, we we did pretty well. We did pretty well in the Spanish flu outbreak in 1920 as well. Um, we actually did quite well. It was a bit, you know, there was chaos and catastrophe all over the place. There were states being locked down. Um, the same as happened in 2020, 100 years later. But in the end, our, mortal- our mortality rates were, were low compared to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's maybe we just benefit because we're a great stonking island. Um, um, but look, even the things that I question right now in regard to, you know, locking... Um, Locking our, our ports down so no one could come in and go or or or, or, or leave uh, without special dispensation. I'm, I think again, you know, while that was a mistake uh, and there weren't proper resources to deal with it, um, I still think you know the decision was made in the best interest of uh, the Australian people. Well, I don't think making decisions in the best interests um, uh, gives you a blanket uh, approval. I think that these things should still be subject to a uh, subject so, to so inquiry. What people, people in a always be cautious of people who are acting in your best interest. And they're the most dangerous people and, in the world. And council there want to make a name for themselves, and it, it just becomes a scapegoating exercise, doesn't it? Uh, well, I can tell you that the Brits are running an inquiry and their inquiry seems to centre on which special advisor said what to what minister. And uh, really, that's that's a nonsense. Special advisors should be seen or not even seen. They shouldn't. They should have nothing to do with it. They are just advisors. Um, yeah, fair enough. But, well, I mean, you know, they, they, they can give evidence, but it, it did include Rishi Sunak, the current Prime Minister, and Boris Johnson, basically very much, very strongly of the position that we should just let it roll. Um, I don't think the inquiry says that at all. Well, was Rishi Sunak was certainly saying to to let it roll. Boris Johnson was certainly saying to let it roll. Oh, I think it's on his killing old people, isn't it? 
Um, the, that was a quote from a from a um, uh, from a, a WhatsApp message, I think. Yes. Oh, well, most of them were lost. You see, Jack Boris. Boris, he can't. Oh, he can't conceive how it happened. But all of his messages have disappeared. All right. What was the biggest story of twenty twenty three? Gee, there's a few. You few you missed out here, Jack. Um, the ongoing war in the Ukraine. The referendum in Australia you've got there, yes, uh, I think that's probably the biggest domestic political story of the year and it was a complete uh, unmitigated disaster for the Labor government. Um, uh, Israel and Gaza will be resonating through what one thing we can feel fairly safely about is uh, that it will be running in 2024 and we might actually have it on our what was the biggest story of 2024. Um what, what were your big stories, Jack? Um, I think the referendum was, the, was, the, was certainly the biggest story in Australia, uh, uh, but uh, is it the ashes? Well, I'll go, I'll go left field. I think the story that's going to run for years, literally years and, and possibly centuries, is the, the uh, alleged mushroom poisonings in Lee and Gatha. Um, that is a story... I noticed it was broken by the Australian, by the one and only John Ferguson, good mate of mine, and uh, and Ferg, uh, Ferg got an award uh, uh, at uh, at the News Awards um, where he got up and said, "This story will outlive me," uh, and, and I'm I'm absolutely certain he's right. It, it will be a story that will keep us mystified and intrigued for years to come, regardless of outcomes in court cases. Yeah, it's it's got a few of the um, the elements that made the Lindy Chamberlain story so good. Uh, These are difficult yeah, things to prove. All of that, and and but unlike the Chamberlain era, now we have this intense fixation on true crime. We should be yeah. doing a true crime podcast, Jack. You know, that, that, our numbers would go through the roof because, you know, that that there is this fascination about about crime. Um, in particular. So when we look at the big podcasts, just as an example, um, you know, the true crime stuff appears near the top. So there's a fascination about that. There's been some extraordinary cases in the United States as well. Um, so we haven't yet had the, you know, the, the true crime potties uh, uh, bring themselves to Lee and Gatha, um, but it will happen. And people will be um, mulling over this for for a long period of time. I've spoken to a lot of people who aren't particularly newsy, who don't follow politics and so forth, and they're completely um, in, entranced by this story. Um, yeah. So, uh, are you going to be the the John Bryson and go down to the Morwell County Morwell County Court and watch this piece by piece and write a book about? I doubt they'll be doing it at Morwell, mate. Um, I think uh, I think that'll be in the uh, Supreme Court um, in uh, in Melbourne. Uh, but uh, look, it will be a fascinating case. Court, court number one, I expect. I think it's going to need a big room. Uh, look, it is one of those big true crime stories, uh, and I was fairly close to it. Um, and uh, uh, we did see uh, we did see a story unfold uh, when I first talked, uh, spoke to Ferg, um, uh, who who broke the story. Um, I I. I knew it was going to be big. I knew it was going to be huge, uh, but I didn't actually understand just how big it was going to be. Huge international coverage for this too. So mm. the, going to be the world's I'm, media will be turning up in the Supreme Court 
in Melbourne in a date yet to be fixed in 2024. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a personal level, uh, the referendum was the, the biggest story for me because I caught, caught so much flack for saying that it would, it would fail. Um, well, so- you were absolutely right in the end and, and I think your figures um, uh, or your, um, your projections for how badly it would fail were, were found to be right. Uh, it was a disaster for the Albanese government. They, um, it, it, it gets to these issues around communication and really it was a, a story that, well, it was a, uh, it, it was a potential constitutional change that might have benefited from an open discussion with the Australian people, not just this year and certainly not in the last two weeks of the campaign, but uh, going back several years. Yeah, and, and US politics at the moment, um, look, it's just the best entertainment, isn't it, really? Well, 2024, I mean, if you tried to predict the outcomes, I mean, it's just completely unpredictable. I mean, and it runs from Trump being jailed and but still a presidential candidate, Trump being elected while in jail, I mean, and, and pretty much everything in between. The possible tapping of uh, Joe Biden... Uh, I suspect um, that can happen all the way up to um, to the DNC in what June, July. Um, uh, I think it, I think it's I think it's August in Chicago. August, that's and right. And I haven't been back to Chicago for a convention since 1968, which was a complete debacle. So it may happen again. Well, 68. Well, well it wasn't bad. 72, but um, um, uh, they they someone needs to tap him, and uh, and it's not an easy thing to do, but someone needs to do it. And then, of course, we've got the prospect of, and, and I suspect if that happened, and that's a big if, I suspect if that happened, there would be some clear air around the Democrats for, for them to have a good run uh, into the November election. But, yeah, look, that's that's the that's going to be the biggest story of 2024, without doubt, and it always is an election year in the United States. But this one, wow, really anything can happen. And, and what was the biggest story in sport? Um, uh, was it the Ashes or was it Collingwood winning a, a premiership and people actually being pleased for them? Well, speak, um, speak for yourself. Um, uh, uh, or, 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 or was it the Matildas? What was the biggest story in sport? Uh, well, I think you're missing a couple of things. Um, I, I think Australia's World Cup win uh, in India, that was an, an outstanding performance in front of huge audiences. So Australia became uh, World Test Champions. They held the Ashes in the UK, probably had a little bit of luck there towards the end uh, with some rain um, at Old Trafford, uh, but held the Ashes and then went on to win the World Cup uh, in India with India red-hot favourites. So uh, I think the story there is that Pat Cummins is one hell of a captain. And, And I was just watching a little bit of a clip you know, he, he, when he came to the wicket, Australia needed 72 at Edgebaston and he steered them through just just uh, ice water going through the veins. Very, very competent captain. So I think that's the, that's the story in, in cricket is that Pat Cummins is one of the best captains this country has produced on form so far. Um, hell of a good bowler, of course, too. They have this thing now, Jack, on the, um, on the Fox coverage of cricket where they call it the hanky. But it's actually about the size of a shoebox that they basically impose on the pitch and as a means to see how accurate the bowler is. Cummins put six balls in the shoebox uh, and then 
came and bowled another over after that and did exactly the same thing. Um, staggering is, accuracy. Is, is this called the hanky? Because Bill O'Reilly yeah. used to use the hanky to uh, um, uh, to, to bowl into. Yeah, and look, other players other players have used tea towels. I think um, the great Sri Lankan uh, uh, bowler. Uh, um, 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 the quick. I'm just trying to think of his name. He used to put a couple of boots uh, down at the uh, down at the other end and bowl at them. Um, yeah. um, one used to bowl at a cricket ball. Uh, bowl at a cricket ball. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I haven't seen that sort of accuracy from from a quick bowler though. I mean, twelve balls all in the shoebox. Anyway, I think that's the story in cricket that Pat Cummins is a great Australian and we and we are witnessing a very, very good Australian side. Where they belong in the pantheon of it all, they're probably not as good as the the Ponting, uh, Gilchrist, Warren sides, McGrath sides, um, but they're coming up against just about everybody else in, you know, perhaps again with the exception of the, the 48 Invincibles. Um, uh, but, yes, a very good side. Uh, disappointing numbers in at the Wacker um uh, Jack, did you see the, the the attendance figures? They weren't good. I didn't see the figures, but I glanced at the screen when it was on, and there didn't seem to be a lot of people there. Well, there's a there's a couple of things to talk about there, and one is the WAC has been redeveloped. So when we do have these smaller test series, maybe they should be playing at the Wacker. Uh, I agree. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a much better visual to have a packed small ground than an empty large yeah, one. Yeah, I think that the Optus Stadium holds about 60. So, you know, maybe that's part of the issue. And maybe uh, the WACA needs to be informed, not the ground, but the Western Australian Cricket Association needs to be informed. You need to get a few more people with a chess cricket. Otherwise, uh, we might be playing these games in Adelaide and Hobart. Um, yep. And, and and it's true that the, the attendance figures have been dropping off in Western Australia. But anyway, excellent year in Australian cricket. Collingwood um, uh, played Brisbane in the grand final, the two best sides in the competition, um, uh, and uh, and had and had a very good win. People were pleased for them because there there's a different culture at that club now, and that's a remarkable thing given the history. You know, they've got a good coach. You know, they don't have. Loudmouth presidents. Um, uh, they uh, don't uh, walk away from some of their uh, cultural problems. Um, you know, they uh, they're 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 a, they're a good outfit, and they'll be thereabouts next year. The Blues will be coming. I'm sure of that too. They had a very good season, and lots to like about the Blues. Um, uh, the Matildas. Well, they they made a semi final, and it was great because that was an overachievement. Um, um, but uh, and, and it belongs in the highlights of sport for the year. Um, but, um, uh, you know, to, to, you know didn't, didn't go all the way. A lot of nonsense about public holidays and all that sort of stuff. What it did do was create enormous television audiences, Jack. And now I'm looking at Football Australia and saying, well, what are you doing in terms of developing the game? And there's not very much. They were giving them a whole pile of money from the Albanese government, and you and you look around at you know junior junior soccer and women's soccer and young girls playing soccer, and there's not a lot of money being spent. So I, I get the impression that there's opportunities going to waste there. Yeah, uh, the AFL are the gold standard for um, a junior um, a junior version of their sport. Yes, indeed. They could all look at that. All right, so. 
sport for and the rest. Nathan Lyon, 500 test wickets. Yeah, Nathan Lyon, 500 test wickets. I was watching a clip uh, yesterday of him taking his first, and I think it was in India, but I could be wrong. But first ball he bowled in test cricket, took a wicket. Um, and I would also like to add, Jack, that Kim Hughes identified Nathan Lyon uh, as a as a uh, bowler, I think, and maybe even for South Australia. And at, at the time, he obviously hails from New South Wales. Uh, and and Kim, with his very good eye for cricket, has said uh, Australia should be pushing him along uh, because he believed he was a long term uh, a, a long term um, uh, star in the making. Yeah, well, uh, a, a mate said to me, mate said to me, he thought. Um, uh, Nathan Lyon had got off to a slow start, so I thought I'd check that out. Um, and um, the first ball, his first ball in Test cricket, uh, was against Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, um, thank uh, you. And he um, uh, and he rolled over uh, Kumar Sangakkara. That's right. And I think he was on I a thought, few at the time. Yeah, and I thought, gee, that's hard to have a better start in Test cricket than uh, at that stage. Kumar Sangakkara was in the top top three or four uh, oh, uh, batsmen in the world. Um, and if you can knock him over first ball, um, I think that's a pretty damn good start. Hell of a good catch. Was that, was that Smith in the slips? It was just a hell of a good yeah, I think it was. Uh, left, left-handed catch, uh, one-hander. Um, uh, yeah, so congratulations to Nathan Lyon. It is a stunning feat. Um, he, he, he probably will get Glenn McGrath before he's done. Uh, they've got about 60-odd wickets to take there. Uh, won't, I wouldn't think, uh, catch warning. He is 36. Um, can you think of a lonelier time, by the way, than uh, Mitchell Johnson uh, on the Triple M cricket call watching uh, David Warner belt 165 over, over two and a half sessions? That must have been uh, a I'm difficult sure. time for him. I'm sure it would have galled a bit. It didn't let on. There was, there was Brayshaw there giving him a bit of niggle, and he said, "Okay, Mitch, what have you been up to? You been up to anything?" Yeah, <laughs> and Johnson wasn't biting. He said, "Oh, look, oh, it's lovely in Perth, beautiful weather, all that sort of stuff." And uh, oh no, yeah, you say you've been haven't been up to anything at all. Um, and and this is while Warner was making runs for fun. So my question is, Jack, uh, D- Dave now definitely goes out in the third test against Pakistan in Sydney. Uh, he probably does. Which, he, uh, which is the way he, cho- he, he would have chosen to go. Um, and where does he belong in a pantheon of cricketers, Australian cricketers? Um, or uh, as look, looking, looking at openers, he's probably behind Matthew Hayden. I mean, he's made more runs than Hayden and in, in, in fewer tests. The problem is he's made... Almost, well, about 70% of his runs in Australia. And, mm. and he doesn't have 100 in India. He doesn't have 100 in England. And his averages are pretty low there. All of that's a bit remarkable because he, he, he makes runs in ODI and, and T20 cricket in India easily. Um, but in Test cricket, not so much. Uh, he has, I forget who he had covered. Um, he passed a number of very great players, Um I think probably his 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 greatest um, sort of uh, contribution to Australian cricket is the way uh, way he plays, and um, and Australia will and, and and cricket fans in general will notice that he's not playing um, because um, let's say Matt Renshaw or a Cameron Bancroft uh, come into the come into the side and open the batting for Australia against the West Indies. Um, 
they won't have that person who can actually win you a test match really in a, in the first session of a day. Um, if if Dave Warner gets gets a, a pretty quick 500, then it opens the door for Australia to make 400. And if Australia make 400 batting first, they, they don't get beaten. So I think that's the main – look, if Warner makes runs, Australia wins. And that doesn't mean if he doesn't make runs, they don't win. But but if he but if he makes runs and the manner in which he makes them and the speed in which he makes them, that sets up an Australian victory virtually every time. And we're going to miss him, and it will be palpable by the time we get into some very serious cricket against India next year, uh, in in Australia and then England after that. Mm. Um, I think he belongs really up there. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly put him alongside Matt Hayden. Matt Hayden made runs in India. Uh, made runs in England, made runs kind of comprehensively all over the place um, and, and Warner's perhaps uh, been uh, a, a, a really strong contributor in Australia and perhaps less so elsewhere, but a fantastic cricketer in all forms. Um, wish him well for the last couple of tests. Uh, what have you got to take us out, Jack? Uh, firstly, uh, two things from Twitter. Uh, the first one was a photo um, from Perth during the test match uh, it was a selfie taken by Wazamak Grant. Uh, they're doing the morning walk before they head off to the ground and do commentary. In the photo were Wazam himself, Michael Vaughan, uh, Mark War, and Ravi Shastri. And I thought, gee, that's a good photo. Yeah, well, they're, all, they're, they're in the Fox team. And, and, and Shastri kind of can be a bit formal. And Wazim Akram's a great commentator. I mean, he's a great cricketer, of course, but he's a, he's a wonderful commentator. And he's had to sit there with the head in the hands a fair bit when catches have gone down and blokes have got out. Um, and you suspect that when Baba Azam gets out fairly cheaply in Pakistan, the, the, the heads go down in the dressing room a bit. Um, but they've got, they got, some, got some work to do. One of the things I love seeing, Jack, was Mitchell Marsh was named man of the match, got that ahead of Dave Warner, got a 90 and then got 60-odd uh, in, uh, in the second dig, I think, and, uh, and, and took a few wickets with the ball. Uh, and in, in, importantly, only, only took one wicket in the first innings, but it was Bubba. It was Bubba, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, and when he got the medal... He walked off the ground, pulled it off his off his head, and gave it to one of the kids. Gave it to one yeah. of the kids. It was a lovely thing to do, and that kid will be hanging on to that for the rest of his life. Um, mm. Yeah, looks like a really fine man. Does Mitch Marsh? Um, the West, sorry, the Pakistan side. What do we make of their performance before you go, Jack? Uh, well, I think we said last week that there is a fair gap between their best and their worst, and this was far from their best. It, it was really hard because by the time they got to bat, Australia struggled in the second innings too against an attack, which is that's the that's part of the problem with Pakistan. Um, um, uh, their their quickest bowler bowls one thirty. He's normally quicker than that, but he's bowling sort of within himself, possibly injured. And then there's a, a fairly young attack that's sort of fairly moderate. Uh, speeds in the 120s um, and then when they got to bat in the fourth dig up against the best attack in the world with Stark Cummins and Hazelwood and Lyon of course the wicket was really misbehaving so Bubba and and one of the other key bats they got out basically gloving balls while they were you know on the front on playing front foot shots so that was telling you the wicket was misbehaving and, and against that attack, they really didn't stand a chance. So it's a bit sad, but 
Um, again, there have to be some questions asked from the whacker, or so not the whacker, but but the curator at, at the ground there that perhaps she she gave a little bit too much assistance to the bowling side in that final innings. It did. All right. And the last thing, yep. uh, again from Twitter, um, uh, there are some little gems on Twitter. Um, someone posted a, a little uh, puzzle there saying, asking, what was the best smart fitness watch to wear for exercise? Um, and the response I like was uh, a petite Philip Nautilus. Uh, Go for a run in South London. Believe me, you won't stop. <laughs> you won't be allowed to stop. Otherwise, you'll be um, losing and, the watch. And, and, and the, fur- the further response was, uh, the marketing spiel, you never really own a petite Philippe, um, uh, is never more true than when getting flash mobbed than on Peckham High Street. Oh, there you go. Very good stuff. All right, uh, listeners, that takes us out for the year, for this show and for the year. Uh, we're probably going to take a couple of weeks off. We'll talk about that. Uh, and we'll have a couple of weeks off and we'll be back to you in January. So in the meantime, uh, let me uh, let me give you the woke version. Happy holidays and and uh, and, and, and be safe. Uh, I was talking to a mate of mine from a prominent bank and they had a end of year celebration, Jack, and the word Christmas was mm. not mentioned, um, which and, is very odd. And the city of, um, uh, of Stonington were calling it um, uh, have a merry time or something. You know, um, uh, Christmas yeah. was no longer to be used. It's okay to say Christmas. Um, and really, it's Christmas all the, all the way around the world, regardless of what religion uh, is predominant in whatever country uh, they're in. So, yes, it's, it's okay. It's okay to say Christmas. You're not offending anybody. Yeah, well, the, 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 the Cantonese locals here uh, mightn't be believers, but uh, they're happy to have Christmas. They, they use the term Christmas, Jack? Oh, absolutely. There you go. Well, uh, I mean, you, I mean you, can, you, you, you can't go into a shop without being um, um, having uh, Christmas carols played. Lovely. Lovely. Well, you enjoy all of that, Jack, and, um, and, and uh, catching up with family on the Boxing Day, uh, eye on the cricket, uh, no doubt. And, um, and uh, we wish our listeners every, uh, every joy over the Christmas period and uh, enjoy your holidays, your time off, And we look forward to uh, catching up with you in the new year. Cheers. See ya.